and its speaker is Mac. Um, hi, I'm Meg. I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you for having me. I'm just warning you, I uh, don't, I thought I turned everything off like on my computer, um, but then I just got a call like through my computer, so hopefully my computer won't ring, but here we are in a pandemic. Um, my sobriety date is February 23rd, 2014. My home group is the Pacific Group. My sponsor is Kitty Brin. Um, it is my first sobriety date. I hope that it is my last sobriety date. Um, and I do believe that if I do everything that I have continued to do and everything that was shown me, that uh, I can keep that date. Um, but uh, yeah. Anytime I've said God willing, my sponsor has always said to me, God is always willing, you're the one who has to be willing. Um, so, um, thank you for, I'm super nervous. Um, I want everyone to love me and pick me up on, you know, uh, and like put me on your shoulders and be like, no one will ever drink again because you're such a good speaker. Um, and that is why uh, I need to be in AA and helping people all the time. Um, yeah, I am, I grew up in the rooms of AA and I know a lot of people like say that emotionally. I physically grew up in the rooms of AA. I have a sober mother um, who's extremely active and um, all of her sponsees have basically been my uh, aunts, essentially. Um, I just have a multicultural family. I'm Irish Catholic, but I have a lot of, I have a Chinese and a Jewish aunt, those are just, um, those are the women who raised me. They were my babysitters, they were my teachers. The um, mayor doesn't even have a camera. Um, yeah, so um, I am an emotional crier. Uh, when I get vulnerable, I cry. And, um, and when I drank, I cried a lot. And usually it was about a boy. It wasn't about being like, oh, I'm so touched by the people in my life. It was like, oh, why didn't this gay guy want to be my boyfriend? is really what it was. So many times that happened. Um, um, and a lot of that was actually in New York. I went to college in New York State, uh, in upstate New York. So I'm sure you all know there's a lot of drinking in upstate New York. I went to a very small school. Um, and um, as I stated, I was raised in AA. So as a result, no one ever told me do not ever drink. But um, what was kind of I was shown what I was shown sobriety. I didn't see people relapse. I didn't see people go in and out. I saw people come in. I saw people say, that's my example. Um, and, um, and I thought that I grew up not wanting to be an alcoholic. And so the first time I was um, given up, the first time I was offered alcohol was at a birthday party in eighth grade. I said no. And then I watched another girl get wasted and then pee in an armoire next to me, um, thinking it was a bathroom, but it was an armoire, uh, and being like, oh, I am never drinking. And then the next day was a sleepover, and the next day my mom, you know, asked about it, and I said someone offered me alcohol, and I said no, and she started crying. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just definitely never drinking. So then I went through high school, and I didn't drink, and I went to prep school, and everyone was like, Probably an alcoholic. I mean, there's at least seven of us in my graduating class that are uh, that are in AA. Um, it wasn't that big of a graduating class, but I don't know. That's LA for you. Um, and uh, I didn't drink, and I also, as a result, thought I was better than you. And that's something that I, you know, uh, I struggle with still. If I'm if I'm not better than you, I'm worse uh, than you. And 
AA teaches to me to be one of, but it can be difficult um, because if I'm not the best, then I don't really know my place. Um, and so I did not do well in high school. However, uh, I thought because I did not drink that I was better than everyone. Um, most of those people have learned how to drink uh, in a normal way. I never did. So I didn't drink in high school. I thought that made me better than everyone. Um, and then I went to college and I didn't drink in college and I went um, uh, to a school called Hamilton and uh, no one on the West Coast knows it. Um, they all thought I was just going to a different high school because there's a high school named Hamilton and I was young. Um, and, um, and I saw a lot of people drink and I still didn't drink. And it wasn't until my parents got divorced after my junior year in college and um, and that summer, I decided that I was going to drink for the first time. I didn't tell anybody who knew me, and I didn't tell any of my friends. And I went with some people from my acting class in a Subaru to Las Vegas, and someone offered me um, a water bottle of vodka. And I had my first drink uh, on, thank you, I see five minutes. I had my first drink on, um, on the, I think it's the 15 freeway, and, uh, and everything about my life changed. I literally went down a different road, a road that I had never gone down before. Um, and it's only through AA that I've been able to get back um, to that person that I was and hopefully better than I was. Um, you know, everything about my life was that I didn't drink before. Um, and then that weekend I was going crazy and I basically drank alcoholically. I had fun, fun with, pro it was never like fun, fun, but it was just always, never knew what, you never knew what you were going to get with me because sometimes I'd be crying. Sometimes I'd be the life of the party. I just, I couldn't control myself that weekend. I was like making out with this guy and that guy and that guy had a wife, but I didn't know he had a wife like his friend. And it's just, I was just like a drunk mess for 11 years. And after that weekend, I remember it was right before my senior year. And I remember driving with my friend and I told him what had happened. And I said, never want to drink again. And I really meant that. And I have to realize that I drank for 11 years after that. Um, and really, I drank for all of my 30s. And I was always, once again, drunk, crying about a guy who didn't want to date me. I was always chasing after men who didn't want me. And for me, my alcoholism unleashes my need uh, for love. And it is, it is a cavern. It is a Grand Canyon cavern um, that once I start drinking, it is uh, all bets are off. And I have a lot of you know, victims essentially of, of that um, insatiable need for love. So I drank a lot. Um, I had a lot of fun. I <laughs> made a lot of male friends who I had unclear relationships with. Uh, and then, uh, and then I, on November fifteenth uh, of twenty thirteen, I went to a wedding in. Um, I went to a wedding. In Kansas and uh, and I drank more than I should have and I did something that I can never take back um, and and that next morning I remember waking up and feeling so unbelievably broken thinking I can never tell anyone what you've done I have so much shame about this and I went to a different program because I didn't think I didn't think alcoholism was it you know I saw what sobriety looked like but I I didn't understand what alcoholism looked like. I've seen what sobriety looked like my whole life, but I didn't know what alcoholism looked like. And for me, it might not look like drinking every single day, but when I drank, I did not know what I would do. And I did so many things I cannot take back.
I started going to another program and I kept drinking. And then I started dating a guy who had some recovery in another program. And I like totally blacked out at his party. And the next day he was like, I'm so mad at you. I can't talk to you. Um, and I was like, what? Boundaries? I don't understand this. And then he sent me an email and he said, this is every single thing you did when you were drinking. And I still have that email. And that email saved my life and it changed my life. I went to the bar when I had that email. And then later that night, someone handed me a drink. And I carried that drink around for an hour. And then I thought, nothing good can, can come up within this. And I put it down. And that's February 23rd, 2014. I did not mean to get sober that day. Uh, it's just the day that God is doing in my life. Um, I called one of my other sponsees who said, uh, drinking ruined your mother's life. You should not drink, given your family history. Why don't you go to one A meeting a week uh, for one month and see how that works? Um, now, I've, I'm going to three meetings today. You know, like one meeting a week seems crazy to me. Um, uh, I have one minute, thank you. Um, and then uh, I went to a meeting called New Hope on New Hampshire. Um, I saw my sponsor, Kitty, who I did not like for uh, the nine years of her sobriety. And she basically, like, gobbled me up to be her sponsee. Uh, and I watched how her life had changed, and I trusted it. And she said things to me, like, we don't date in our first year. And then she said, after our first year, we don't date until we've gone through the steps. Um, and I waited two years, and I didn't date um, because she said, you have nothing to offer anyone um, until you've had a spiritual experience as a result of the steps. And I believed her. Um, and I didn't date for two years, one month and one week. And then I went on a date with someone who uh, I eventually married uh, and who I met when I was a newcomer. And I made him wait. Because for me, I needed to make someone wait. And, and really, that's someone I need to make wait with myself. Um, I have a sponsee. She's on here. Shout out to Brianna in Texas. Um, I am of service. I said I'm going to three meetings today. Um, every part of my life uh, is uh, interwoven. Every part of my life. I have a sober husband. Uh, my mom is sober. All of her friends are sober. All of my friends are sober. I have my sober friends texting me right now, like, good job. Um, that's not what I came in here six years ago. Um, so if you are new, I hope that you just um, listen for the similarities, not the differences, um, and, um, and get a sponsor because she or he or they uh, could change your life. At least that's what happened for me today. Our second 10-minute speaker is Dennis. Okay, how's it going? I'm Dennis, I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for having me. Um, I, uh, I have 22 months sober. Um, my sober date is August 4th, 2018. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I have a sponsee, and I've been through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, like I said, thank you for having me at this meeting. This is my first time on this meeting. I've heard, uh, I heard a lot about it. Uh, my home group is actually a group that I started in quarantine called My Resentments and Me. Um, and I've never qualified for 10 minutes. So here, here we go. I don't want to spend too much time on, um, on my drunk log. I, it, I started drinking when I was 16 years old. Um, I grew up in a severely alcoholic home. Saw a lot of things as a child that only now I realize um, kids shouldn't really see. And um, 
it was pretty much inevitable that I was going to become an alcoholic. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, if I look, for, if I look back, I, I was given sips of alcohol since I was, I don't know, four years old, but the first time I consciously drank when I was 16, cause I tried to fight it for so long. Um, my dad is sober. My uncle is sober. My little brother is sober. I have a lot of sober family. This disease runs very, very deep in my family. Um, you know, I'm just going to skip 10 years to when I was 26 when I got sober. Um, I was drinking every day, uh, the equivalent of 14 beers a day. I was, and, and many other things that do not belong on this uh, fellowship. And I was miserable. Alcohol had taken pretty much everything from me that I had wanted for myself. Uh, my relationships, my finances, um, you know, this close to taking my job. I still don't really know how I managed to hold down a job during that period. Uh, my creativity, everything that I had going for me at the time. Um, my dad had gotten sober. My dad had gotten sober um, a year before me, and he... You know, attraction, not promotion throughout the whole year up until that point would tell me, you know, come to a meeting here and there, come to a meeting. And um, eventually it got to the point where I did. And um, I haven't had a sip of alcohol since I came into that room. I met my sponsor in that room. I um, That was in the city at a at a meeting called Lunch Bunch in Midtown Manhattan. I don't know if any of you know it, but um, that meeting is near and dear to my heart. And, um, you know, from there, the magic started to happen. I had a year of a pink cloud. You know, I went through the steps with my sponsor. Everything was, uh, was this new world, you know, and I really dove into my spirituality and to what I, what I was deciding was my higher power. Um, which I didn't really know at the time. I had lost all hope of any type of higher power. Um, but but that year, you know, and it took me a while to really get into the program. It took me about six months to start going to meetings every day, to call my sponsor every day, things that I need to do now to stay sober. But um, what, I guess I, what I guess I really want to bring, what I want to talk about is the second year of sobriety, which leads me up to here and especially in this quarantine. And, you know, when the pink cloud wore off for me, it was reality, you know, set in. And my reality is that with my alcohol, with my alcoholism comes a slew of character defects that, um, that transcend my, any, that transcend any sort of, sort of substance. Um, they usually involve other people, jealousy, taking other people's inventory, um, perfectionism, um, pride. And these are the things that I've been working through. This is, you know, I've been re revisiting steps six and seven on a daily basis um, throughout this year and especially in this quarantine, which has given me a chance to really, you know, look inward and be introspective about all of this. Um, but, you know, once I put down the drink, all these things came to light. 
and I would say that I have not, um, I have not seen as much pain, emotional pain as I have in these past few months. And I say that in the best way possible. Um, you know, and I work several other fellowships, which, which I will not bring up or mention here, but you know, everything kind of ties in in some way. And for me getting sober and, um, you know, putting down the alcohol, thank you for five minutes was just this, the first step in this, in this, um, in this, in this great journey and in the journey that I always wanted for myself. Right. Um, but you know, bringing these things to light and, um, has just been a painful process for me. Um, you know, it comes, it comes at odds with what I always thought and what I always believed the world was supposed to be, um, in this prideful self-centered view. And getting rid of that has been, it's not, it's not been an easy feat, you know, in, in these, in these different ways that we view the world and, and these comfortable ways a lot, a lot of, a lot of the ways that I live in my character defects make me comfortable and getting out of them is the most uncomfortable thing. Um, you know, like, especially now I love to be the center of attention and I love to get validation in any way that I can. And that's comfortable for me, but that's living in my character defects. And to not do that is there's a physical sensation of uncomfort, you know, to live with that. And, and that's not, that's not easy. Right. But that's why I come to these meetings every single day. That's why I started a meeting as soon as this quarantine hit, because I knew that I can't go more than a few. I need to go to the meeting every day. I can't go to, uh, I can't go a few days, like a few days without a meeting. This is, this is the way that I get to find myself on a daily basis. And, um, then I know this journey is a long and slow one as well. I, you know, another theme in my character defects has been, you know, trying to go as hard as humanly possible as fast and as hard as possible in a short amount of time as possible and instant gratification. These are, you know, another set of things that, um, that really ruled my life for 10, for 26 years of my life, quite honestly. And learning to unravel that and to just take deep breaths and to pause and to be slow and calculated is like learning a different language, you know, like it's truly like learning a different language. It takes a lot of failure, a lot of error, a lot of slow realizations. And, you know, I am not even two years sober yet. And I know that this is going to be a lifelong journey. And like, I want to be at the finish line always, but I know that, um, you know, that's not realistic and I have to just, you know, keep taking steps back and I want to, um, finish with where I'm at today and, um, and my connection with my higher power, which I believe is like the, the source of this, um, program and whatever higher power needs for you and for me. Um, so tomorrow I'm going to sign a lease for, uh, 
my own studio apartment in Brooklyn. And this was two years now um, since I was living. One, one minute, thank you. Um, on, a, on a couch in uh, Long Island. I was, uh, you know, completely financially devastated and, and mentally and physically devastated. And the reality of my life now has completely changed. And I, you know, I don't owe any of that to myself because if I, if I had to choose, I would be in the exact same spot. Uh, stagnation was a huge theme of my life when I was using, um, but it couldn't be any more different now. You know, I'm, I'm making a big step into in my life and it came a lot quicker than I'm even comfortable with. You know, these promises come true and in my experience, like, you know, you, you have this idea of when you want them to come true, but sometimes they just happen and then you got to roll with it. Um, and you know, the, the foundation of all this is my connection to my higher power, which comes in and out. It's a daily struggle to get there. Um, but you know, step 11 is living in step 11, at least some part of each day has been absolutely key for me. And that is time. Thank you all so much. Uh, have a great meeting. Thank you. Main speaker tonight is Carol. Everybody in Carol, alcoholic. Grateful to be here. I want to thank all the new predecessors who told a wonderful story, keep my memory green. I'm a drunk who doesn't drink, and I am an addict who doesn't use. That's the truth, and the facts are I changed from being that active drunk or that active addict into being this person of um, sobriety. I call myself a tri-coaster. I grew up on the West Coast. I got sober on the Gulf Coast. I stayed sober on up and down the East Coast, and I've lived back and forth from the different coasts. Growing up in Los Angeles, um, in the time of um, Sunset Strip and Hollywood and Vine, I did a lot of my drinking up and down those streets. Um, I, my first drink, uh, I was drunk. Uh, the girls used to wear pretty pearls and have them, and my hand got caught up in the pearls and tore it up and. Pearls went everywhere, and then they had a lot of underground parking, and I remember drinking that cheap wine and uh, leaning over underground parking and throwing up in somebody's white convertible car. I spent a lot of time uh, drinking from my, the time I was 14. Um, very intimidated. Um, I matured physically, but you know, I was still a little girl and never fitting in. Always a square peg in a round which most of us know a lot about that. For whatever reason, I think there's damage that comes from living. There's damage that came from some of my own making. Some comes from other people. But it would, nonetheless, it led me to be a very oddly shaped individual, always feeling strange and different about myself. I look back now over those falling down, falling out of cars. I didn't ever get beat up. I beat myself up. Um, I remember waking up with a black eye because I really did hit the doorknob. But that, that was bad. But I was this kid, um, I, and I liked other drunk people. I, of course, I, I wanted to always find the, other, the girls who drank the most, the, 
the guys. I had a friend that lived around the corner. We were never boys and a girlfriend, but we used to steal his parents' liquor and drink it. And then we'd go fill it back up with water, and then, you know, it would be cold at night in California. So I, 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 I like being drunk because it made me feel okay about me, which I never did. And I guess a part of my, my story is also I graduated from high school. I was 17. I never knew what to do with me as a young person. I never knew where to head and what was my call. I, there, there was nothing in particular. My parents were just glad that I didn't get them a lot of trouble. My brother gave them a lot of trouble. I grew up in a very mixed cultural family, Latin, Anglo, Asian, and African-American. So when I you know, grew up, I thought that's what everybody's family looked like. It was a very California family. So I take out my family photos a lot of times. I, go, I guess that is odd, but those are my people, and that's who loved me, and that's how I grew up. My dad was a red-faced drunk. Um, my brother and I used to see him coming down the street from work, and we could tell that he was red from a block away. And him, my brother and I would run and hide because he was a very destructive rageaholic. Um, he would break up the furniture. He would beat up the walls. Uh, he would throw temper tantrums. And my mother told a story one time that um, my father stopped throwing tantrums because he would jump up and down in the room literally and shake the house. And then one day, my brother and I probably got tired of it, so we started jumping up and down with him. And then from that day forward, for whatever reason, he stopped throwing those particular kinds of tantrums. But he was always drunk or drinking are angry. He used to have that angry face. I used to call it Robert De Niro face. We used to turn up his mouth and we knew that hell was getting ready to come because of the amount of anger. So I understood anger and I always thought that anger was a power, but it wasn't. Um, but I met my spouse uh, when I was 19, got married at 21. And before I married him, and I never understood his thing with me because I felt like he was like the baby Jesus. He was like this good person and he liked this wild girl. I was just like a crazy California fool on on the highway, you know? So, but I mean, I would get drunk and throw up and, and sometimes I'd fall out of the car my face would be scarred and, and he just kept picking me up. He just loved me. Uh, I have no idea. And I used to ask him, what, what is wrong with you? Seems like you don't want to do differently. But maybe he just didn't. Maybe we were such opposite that he just loved us. But anyway, we got married, started moving around with his, his career. Um, and our first go around was we went to the Dominican Republic to do work down there. And I kind of like didn't stay necessarily drunk just a little bit because there we were kind of like ambassadors from the United States to representing this country. So try to do better than what I've been at home. Um, then we moved again. We came here to Houston, where I live now, and um, my drinking escalated. Two children, um, drunk, during one pregnancy. I pray for my child today. Um, he, he, did his, he has his own story that he built. And I have this thing that God had given to me about both of my children that there's, I know you know the yellow crime scene tape. This one says, keep out God at work. And apparently that somebody did that for me to keep out God at work until God could work. 
My sobriety date is March 21st, 1976. That was 44 years ago. And here I am. I was blind to everything, no self-esteem. I was a pee-in-the-pants drunk. I carried extra underwear, which is, of course, very humbling. There was a lot of I nevers, but that was a yet, as far as I can tell now. And the story of, of all the drunken waking up hungover, thinking that, oh, I'll, I'll eat a loaf of bread that should absorb the liquor or drink the pink Pepto-Bismol, um, trying to come up with things but not knowing anything about alcoholism at all. So um, I was also always in search of something to get relief from me and my circumstance and how badly I felt about me. But I found a church to go to and, and whatever this little church was, it's like in this alternative neighborhood. And I go to church and I join the Sunday school or something like that. And these people, they were talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, what's Alcoholics Anonymous? I'd never heard of that. So they basically 12-stepped me and, and then they got this guy that owned the, the Christian bookstore and he took me aside one Saturday when the store was open and told me about, you know, his blackout drinking. And I thought that's the only way I ever drank was blacking out. I, I didn't. And so he shared with me that I kind of got it and I kind of didn't. And I guess I was about um, 20, it was 25 then. And I heard the message, I heard the things, but there's that point, you know, you just, I just didn't know who I was. And that was just enough, like they say, to mess up the drinking. So it probably took me about 24 months because uh, I had a couple of other occasions where uh, an associate, a friend of ours, passed away. He was never supposed to drink again, and he did. And he died in his car. He, it was cold here in Houston. And the carbon monoxide, the, the garage was attached to the car, I mean to the house. And the carbon monoxide went up. Not only did it kill him, all the bedrooms were over the garage to the front of the house. So the carbon monoxide went up, killed his five-year-old son, moved forward, did brain damage to his daughter, and then did the least damage to his wife. But we were all supposed to go to church that Sunday, and the wife had called me. I guess she was awake enough, and she said, something's wrong with Don, and I can't wake up Alex, and I can't wake up Denise. So my husband and I jumped in the car. We go over there. We're the first ones there. And there's Don dead in his car. He bled out from the alcoholism. I didn't know that the, that the insides of us could wear out and just one day wouldn't be able to have any capacity to have that rubbing alcohol. And went upstairs and found the little boy. And then we called the ambulance and the police. And right there, um, I was 27 years old at that point. I thought, we drank like them, but nah. took me another 24 months. But at that point, we also I went and bought the little baby boy a suit to be buried in, made arrangements to send Don's body back to California to be buried, got the daughter into some kind of treatment because of her brain damage, um, and then the, the, the wife. So we kind of like had that, that moment 
My husband was never a particular drinker, so it was me who is the drunk. And so two years later, after many more incidents and, and staying drunk and not knowing how to stop, I went down to 98 pounds. So that also meant that I had other patterns and behaviors that stuck with me as a person. You know, bulimic, anorexic, same patterns can show up whether they are with food or, or substance or whatever, but addicted to trying to fix it, becoming an addict about many, many things. And so that 98-pound girl went back to those same people that were in recovery and talked to them. And once again, they took me to some meetings. And at that first meeting, it was a speaker meeting, and the guy again spoke about blacking out drinking, and that's what I did. And over this time, I took that chip, came back, and I made up my mind and it was that cross, I guess that, that light bulb that goes on. You, you want to live or you want to die. And I thought, I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to be like this. And so how I am today is this. I'm a student instead of a teacher. I feel as if I was a teacher when I was a drunk and using. I was teaching everybody how not to live this life. And so when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I saw that people were staying and there were a lot of people that were going. And in my time of sobriety, I've ushered a lot of people out into death, um, very hard, very sad, to sometimes be the only people left in the room. Sometimes the ladies in recovery and their family would be the only ones who were in attendance at the funeral because it had ruined everything. That higher power was this alcohol and this using, and no matter what we said, that sucker would win. And it would just be like horrified. So like I'm in my twenties and I'm seeing like, at that point, these ladies had teenage kids and there they are that they will not have a mother and they may become drunks themselves. And I remember sitting in these large churches with the casket and the few family members and then these few members in, in sobriety, these, these women who were working really hard to, to remain sober, ushering her goodbye. And I remember that I didn't want that as my faith. So in coming back and forth and going to different places, some of the things that I've learned is praying for the courage to have the ability to adjust living and staying sober on three different parts of the country as well as anywhere else. It's like, don't let me get stuck, dear God, on how I think it ought to go. Give me some flexibility so that I can receive. A lot of times before I speak, one of my prayers is, let me give so that I may receive. Let me receive so that I may give. Let me be fundamental as a predecessor. And let me take what the predecessors have brought here and, and keep it here. On some, I have a library, and I have tons of books on recovery, so pardon me while I reference them. But I have, I'll show you, I have the big book, the first, first edition of the big book. This is a new cover, but here's the first edition. I have my 44-year-old book, and I have, like, things pasted in it. See, there's an index. You see all these post-it notes. 
you know, the, they must have been dinner post-it notes and I have some of the first post-it notes. <laughs> I have this, this other uh, big book and it says 1997 fog lifters, 5th and 55th Street. So here's like study guide working all marked up dates, looking at it, things highlighted. Must have had the first highlighter. You know, then here's fourth edition big book, different stories with 160 something page. Let's see how much time, where am I? 15 minutes, keep talking. So study book, post-it notes. I'm still studying. I came for my drinking, I stay for my thinking. There are four things that kind of happened in coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a light bulb to go off that this drunk girl is going to die at 98 pounds. And that light shone on, on this chaos and hell and sick and dying. And I had these two little kids, they were three and five years old. So that chaos was brought into order with me naming who I am and what I am. I'm a drunk who doesn't drink and I'm an addict who doesn't use. And that chaos came into the order of Alcoholics Anonymous, where it set boundaries. My boundaries are, let me be clear on when I reach my sober limit. I am very limited. I did damage that won't go away, and it doesn't have to. The work is mine. This program is mine because I've gone in 10 years increments. One 10-year increment, I did not feel the presence of a higher power. And it was a test. And the test was like this. Um, I could see you getting sober. I could see people getting in other programs. I could see all kind of 12-step things working. And I grew to depend upon that. Group of drunks. Good orderly direction. Let me just be here in the presence of recovery. Give me the grace, dear God, just to be here. I don't want to leave. I earned my seat in here the hard way, those scars and bumps and bruises and your drunkenness and throwing up and being embarrassed and being let down by me is what kept me here. I give myself gifts of sobriety. I, I have a, a, a stack of little books here. See my little, they're, they're wrapped in ribbon. I love ribbon. And this one is all this, like 12 stupid things in mess up recovery. Oh studied that. Then they came out with that stage two stuff, recovery. That's backwards. I love drop the rock, the ripple effect and, and, the, and drop the rock. For a long time, I like my father, I had just all this pissed off stuff and I was angry. And then some dear soul uh, wrote the angry book. And it used to be read, that first book that, that I got on the angry book. And I'm like, oh my God, I have so many forms of anger that I didn't know was anger frustration, annoyance. They go from the range of that little bother to rage and murder. Whoa. All forms of anger that I need to be a student about because apparently I'm capable of it. If I let it become this power greater than me, I will live with it and live with its dictate. So the fight that I have is for my recovery. I fight for this. I love the way that I was instructed to be in the meeting here today. That care of this vessel that holds sobriety and holds recovery is 
what was given to me. It's what's given to the new company. And now this is given to us to maintain. We are to protect our program. It, it, is, it is imperative. I have this other book, The Sin of Recovery. <laughs> it's like slick by father somebody. So and then I have this other study book called Stuck. How many things have I been stuck on that was getting ready to become a higher power? Let me get unstuck. Give me guts, God. Give me the way to not stay stuck. And I never wanted to be this person who came in with 40-something years of sobriety and did one year 40-something time. I'm here being this student of this way, way outside mystery school. That's not a theory. It's what I practice. What I practice in the good times is what I will do in the bad times. And then I come back to practice, and there it is in the 12th step. And then raising my consciousness. I find books, anything that has courage on it, I read it. My library is full for this student who's been broken. And no one ever told me that, that I was not going to be broken. I had a bout with uh, learning about sponsorship. I learned that I didn't know how to listen. So I took active courses on listening. How to listen, how to sit still, how to stay in the room. You know what? A lot of us would get up, you know, we're up talking to it and moving around. What about learning how to sit in a seat? Sit down. Let nails grow on your butt. Let them be hammered into the seat. Stay there. Learning about forgiveness. There's some other guy in the recovery, he wrote something on radical forgiveness. And I went to several workshops because I thought, I don't know how to do that. How many things do I not know how to do? How much of my ignorance am I going to let run me? I need to have this power greater behind me than the things in front of me. And most of the time, I don't have those things that God has. And I ask it, please give me your attributes. I don't have them. I would like them, but I don't have them. And I don't know how to do that. I didn't know how to pray. So I got books on that. Go to seminar, take classes, you know. Then they have all this stuff of a, a program for you, a guide for living. There it is. Blue and yellow. Yay. Then I read Ebby's story. I didn't know anything about that guy, you know. Then I got several books on sponsorship. I thought, I don't know how to do that either. Then I have a whole bunch of other books that, that just the titles have drunks in them. I want to know about history of drunk, right? What have I been doing? You know, money drunk, money sober. Yeah, yeah. All kinds of, I didn't know how to write. I'm a writer. I write a lot of things. I have degrees. What have I been doing with my time? Time is what we are keeping. Time is what we have. Time is the spiritual axiom. What I commit to. Time, uh, you know what? Worship has been assigned to time. Recovery has been assigned to time. What I've been collecting is, I'm going to let you listen. That's 44 years of chips, okay? And here's my latest one. My friend, who's probably on, on the little cake, sent me this little gorgeous 44-year chip. I didn't know they existed, but she sent it to me, right? There is no excuse for me not to have recovery with me. I used to travel a lot, and I have this little Sterilite box. It's a tiny box, and it has all, all, 
the little books of recovery inside this little box. It would fit in my car. It would fit in my suitcase. It would fit in my life. I have no excuse that so-and-so doesn't call me back. So what? I'm the one that needs the program. The work is mine. It's my thing to do. I started like in this last four weeks. My spouse died. I buried him two weeks ago. And I'm a, um, a watercolorist. I, I display at one of the watercolor societies here. I don't care if I don't sell anything. You know, it's like people, they always say, oh, I, I don't know how to create. Well, you created a mess. You can create something else. <laughs> so, so, so get with it. But here, I have a little ribbon art. It's just a little, little bitty ribbon. And what holds the memory of the ribbon is called the key. And, and in this ribbon work, it's like my recovery. It, this, this structure and this order and this boundaries is the key of my sobriety what I do. I'm going to show you another little thing of my ribbon work. Can you see it? It's a little teapot. And I do this by hand. Mm -hmm. And here's like, here's some candy, but it's actually ribbon. I make trays and trays of fiber ribbon. And you lean, I'm going to lean this way. This is one of my garments. I also do art to wear. What have I been doing with my 44 years? working like a dog because I don't want to be a dog. Not four-legged, not crawling around, not losing what I could what I could just claim. And it's a fight, yeah. And I have the up and downs, I have things, I'm a human. And in this human being, I had to pray for the curse to stop being a, a human doing. I just worked in a book not too long ago, um, that's related, I think, by another recovery person. Yeah, the title is, It's Never Too Late to Begin Again. And here I am, beginning again, asking for this deeper walk. Sometimes what I've understood that I have been, as a recovering woman, person, I've been the note on God's heart. It played the song of recovery. It plays the song, and I am this quaver. And that quaver is this shudder. And most of the time when you tell your story, I shudder. And I think I'm on that staff, that musical staff. And there's the notes of God playing this incredible song. It is like when we all stop and pray, there's this song of recovery. I continue to work on my library. We and I have been gifts, been given gifts. The gifts of recovery. And the gifts came from the worst part of me. Praying for the courage to embrace the bad girl, the bad boy, the bad thing. And letting this higher power make it into what it wants it to be. Which is where we spend. I am an accountant. You are an accountant. I'm an accountant of this time. How are you spending it? Where are you spending it? I do this artwork. I live in recovery. I, I scuffle with this fog that does come with the grieving. Have I lived well? Have I made a difference? Those are good questions. 
And the other thing is like they used to ask, and I think we should start this process again. They would come up and ask you, what step are you on? And then you need to be able to say why you're on that step. We are 12 steppers. We need to step and bring it back to life. I don't know about the other steps that go there, but then it's like this other part of this, this structure that AA has given us, those, those 36 things, 12 steps, 12 traditions, and then the 12 concepts. Whoa, that structure. That structure helps me to understand my boundaries. I am a drunk who doesn't drink. I need to know who I am and remember that. And I and I hear that memory just like in this ribbon work that I do. In this key, I hear this memory in you. I hear that beginning. Yes, I've been like that. I was one. But now if I need to start it over again, give me a first step. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a first step, for being a 12th stepper. There's a lot to adjust to, but I pray for that courage. I didn't have it on my own. And I really, really want to thank this, this wonderful meeting for asking me to share. And I just like the Meg and, and Dennis. It's like it's nerve-wracking to tell the truth if you've been a liar. So, so thank you for allowing me to tell the truth, for showing up with what I have. I pray for the courage to have another year. And maybe I can come back with a different color, uh, you know, recovery chip. I pray that I can live so long as a sober, clear woman of honor, dignity, and integrity who is a student no matter how old I am, no matter what this is saying to me. Don't let this sucker unseat you. It's my seat. I paid a big price to have my seat anywhere in the world, in any language. And I have the right to be able to walk through celebratory things with you as you will with me. I've made friends in this room, and I never met these ladies and gentlemen. And they call me, and they send me the things that I need through love. And I appreciate all of you so much for letting me be this full-growing, blooming person. I came in kind of a rat, and now I got a squirrel, got a great T-A-L-E and a T-A-I-L. <laughs> you know, I appreciate you guys. Am I up? Hi now. All right. Thank you guys. Appreciate it.